All right. We are live. What's up, guys? Um, Roy here. You're listening to the Balance Mill Podcast series. And today is another segment of the We Were in a Cult episodes here. And um, today's episode, I have Stephanie, who is was a was a member of the church and uh, currently has a case against the ICOC. Uh, and so we are going to talk about her life, all that stuff in and out of the church. So welcome, Stephanie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, this is wild. I feel I'm excited <laughs> to have this talk with you. I'm excited that this platform is reaching people uh, outside of where I'm from on the East Coast and getting to the West yeah. Coast. And I've heard from people from Boston and other areas now. So it's been kind of cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it is interesting to think that. Um... We're, it's such an isolating group. Yeah. At the same time, the the veins it carries are so widespread, which is just so crazy. Yeah, it's it's such a it it feels to us. I think it felt so big. Mm-hmm. Oh you know, yeah. You would hear about our church was everywhere. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, in Texas, they hosted a huge conference in 2012. Mm-hmm. It it filled up like the biggest uh, stadium, auditorium, theater. I don't know what you want to call it mm-hmm. um, here in in Texas, and so um, it it was where the Spurs play, like the San Antonio mm-hmm. Spurs play there. It was just, I mean, I only attended one of the days because I was not well at the time, like health wise, but. Um, I mean, to think that, you know, our congregation could fill that space to me just felt like, you know, we were like the biggest church in the world. That's yeah. how you feel, you know, <laughs> that's how you feel when you're in it. Yeah. That is as soon as you're out of it and then nobody knows who or what this was. And you're just like, that's, it's just, it's weird, right? Yes. It is. You talk to people and, and they're like, um, no, I've never heard of it. And you're like, how have you never heard of this? <laughs> the most important thing that's ever happened to me ever. <laughs> it the is strange. Yeah, it is strange. Um, <laughs> and then you're like, wait, I can't talk to you because you don't know about it and you don't go there. So you spent, a bad person. Yeah. Or you spend <laughs> half the conversation when people ask you about it, like defining topics and themes and things that they just don't yes. understand. Yeah, and then defending it, like as if, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, yeah. it, like God needs defending. <laughs> I know. So, so one of the f- first questions I, I like to ask is, were you a kingdom kid or were you met? In so I'm a kingdom kid. So yeah. it's kind of a, you know, as I look back at or just think about how my family got into the church. It's just so messy, really. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, and as a member of that congregation, it was a, a miraculous story. And, you know, just God had to do so much to get us there. But now that I look back on it, it's just really messy. Um, so my parents um, uh, were part were Catholic for a very long time. So we were baptized in to the Catholic Church when I was a baby, and my sister also, and my brother also. And shortly after <clears throat> that, um, uh, 
they started attending a Mother's Day Out program, which is like a, I don't know if you have kiddos, but it's like where you can take your kids during the day to be watched. Yeah, um, I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there was one close to their, close to where they lived and they started taking my older sister to that Mother's Day Out program. Mm -hmm. And the teachers of that Mother's Day Out program happened to be um, the the defendants in our lawsuit. So this was before the church was even, uh, even had a congregation in our city. So those individuals that were teaching at that Mother's Day Out program also had children in the program. And so they became friends with my parents and invited them to church. Now the church at that time, um, the, the church I'm talking about at that time was a, was a mainline Christian church. Yeah. Had this sort of, for those who are familiar with the ICC or ICOC had a like Bible talk within the group that didn't really fit the traditional mainline church of Christ. They were a little bit more rigid, a little bit more um, invasive, I guess. So it was a really small group of about 12 or 15 people. And that group of people somehow found out about the movement uh -huh. uh, Kip's movement and that they were going to be um, hosting a huge uh, International Church of Christ conference in Boston and invited uh -huh. this small group to go. So my family went, <clears throat> my family along with all these other families and uh, went to that move, went to that uh, convention, that conference. And shortly after that, uh, we're I want to say encouraged, but they were really told that if they wanted to become members of the ICOC, they needed to move to Dallas, where there was an ICOC. So my family, along with several of those small Bible talk within that mainline Church of Christ, moved to Dallas to become disciples, to become members of the ICOC there. And then shortly after that, came to San Antonio. Wow. So, was so I was about two, I think, when we, uh, when, so I, I say I was about two when my parents started uh, place membership with the traditional, I see, I mean, traditional mainline Church of Christ. Yeah. And then we moved to Dallas when I was about five or six years old. Wow. Yeah. So for all intents and purposes, I mean, you, all you knew was the ICOC. All I've known. And that's why, and so some people don't understand. I, I like that you use the word mainline because that's what we refer to, just the traditional Church of Christ. And a lot of people don't understand because we always referred to ourselves as non-denominational, but we had right. the word Church of Christ, and it was because we kept Church of Christ because it started from a, a traditional Church of Christ, and then we off, you know, we right. defected from there. Um, so that's crazy that an entire group of people just moved. Yeah, just... and, and you know, the, the craziest part, I think, uh, just within my own intimate family, my immediate family, there was five of us. And um, when I was six months old, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic terminal lung disease, yeah. among other things. But um, <clears throat> that was mostly, mostly affected was my lungs. And so caring for me was very, very challenging. And um and my parents got a lot of heat from their families. Oh, yeah, I bet. Like, why would you take your sick kid and move to Dallas? Like, why would you do that? 
Um, but of course, my parents felt like this is where this is where God was, and this is what they needed to do to be saved, and they needed to do to advance His kingdom. I mean, you know, they they bought in so much so that my mother uh, at that Boston conference, uh, I think it was in '89, that Boston conference, she. I mean, they joke about it, but this is a legitimate story. She put her wedding rings in the plates being passed to raise money to oh, the future kingdom, Kip's kingdom, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. So she so she uh, lost her wedding rings for a very long time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I found out kind of a backstory of who ended up buying them, and I got them back for her um, 25 years later. But that's how invested they were. Yeah. So we moved to Dallas. Uh, yeah, I was really young. We moved to Dallas. And it, it, in a lot of ways, your parent, like it's, it sounds wild to me that an entire group of people, but then at the same time, it doesn't because that's just what we did. The church would do. Right. We would, yeah. you would move places and start churches. And even like for us, I remember in Atlanta, there were a lot of times that families would move to certain neighborhoods. Yep. to have kids at specific schools to kind of help build up that area. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my parents whole decision to moving to Dallas was just because they couldn't become disciples. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, God. That make sense. But, <laughs> but at the time, you know, they were fully locked in and, yeah. and uh, every decision made from that point on was, just for the betterment of uh, the ICOC. Yeah. It's crazy that y'all were at that Boston conference. Your parents were, I know my parents were at that. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, we lived in Georgia. And I mean, I just remember, well, okay. I think just my mom went. Uh, oh. But I just, I can remember this big Boston conference that my, you know, everybody had to go to. Oh, you know? absolutely. Yes. And, what was crazy is that, you know, my parents had three children, a lot of the, well, a majority of the group of people that came from San Antonio and went to that Boston conference had, had children and families, uh -huh. but it wasn't a bring your kids thing. So yeah. all yeah. of them had to leave their kids at home. And I mean, I remember, I don't remember my parents. I was too young coming home and like talking about it. Uh -huh. I just remember that like the decision was made that we were moving. So we all packed up and moved. And I mean, you know, there, the good of it, I think in that time was that the CF care center in Dallas was leaps and bounds beyond where the care center here in San Antonio was. So I ended up actually getting much better care there in Dallas at the children's hospital than I was getting here in San Antonio, not, not just, not because of any specific issues with my family or anything like that, just because Dallas is a bigger place with more medical advancements at the time. Yeah. was mm -hmm. here in San Antonio. So it actually, I think ended up benefiting me individually and my health, um, having a better care system than, than San Antonio. Well, I mean, there's positive there, right? There is, there's always a positive. Yeah. So, so growing up, mm -hmm. you know, the church is always there. Right. And what was, what was like, what was your image of God as a kid? Do you, do you have a memory or like, what, how was God portrayed to you or 
anything like that? Um, it's a, that's a tough question. I think I think sometimes uh, my perception of a higher power or God uh-huh. or um, miracles is a little bit skewed because I'm going to be 40 in a few weeks and I have a genetic lung disease that told me I was supposed to die when I was eight and then yeah. 15 and then 19 and uh, specifically people living with my uh, genetic markers uh, don't statistically live past 19. So I think my idea of God and and um, life, I guess, in general, has always been one in a place of gratitude. Yeah. I've always felt very grateful that um, even though I was really sick and really struggling, I always felt really grateful for the grateful for the days I wasn't feeling sick and struggling. And so um, I, I guess I just had this idea that I was on borrowed. I was always on borrowed time. This is not, um, you know, people talk about life being short or life not being guaranteed. I didn't really feel those kinds of things. I just processed my life and my everyday walk as though if today doesn't hurt, tomorrow might. So I'm going to do today what I can and then I'll work on tomorrow. And I don't think that I ever, <clears throat> really, I don't think that I ever let the church define for me what my relationship to God was going to be in the in the depth of my heart. I always knew it was mine to have. Yeah. Um, now, there are definitely moments and conversations and things where I, you know, the controlling atmosphere was always there. <clears throat> and I had to work through a lot of that. But I just remember as a really, even as a really young kid being sick and being in the hospital and, and struggling and what have you, I always felt like I'm just grateful to be able to breathe and I'm tomorrow could be better. I didn't really think as a kid about getting old and being married and having a family. That wasn't I could not think like that when I was yeah. a kid. It mm-hmm. just wasn't part of my mentality at all. I think it's really cool that you were able to always feel that that the relationship was yours. Um, right. I think for for me, I never felt that. Um, mm-hmm. For a lot of people, I don't think felt that. Um, right. God was 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 what we they told us he he was um and it was a dis it was it was kind of a distant kind of God looking down on you but yeah. uh you know and, and I but it was that too uh-huh. I, I had some feelings of that yeah when I would mess up or do something stupid or get in trouble yeah, of course. it definitely felt like the condemnation was there um and I I remember for a period there in my teens where I definitely felt like my relationship with God was being held hostage. And I was like, for lack of a better term, fighting that like Stockholm syndrome, like yeah. I'm going to fall into this and this is just who, who I'm going to be, or am I just, can I fight through it? Yeah. I, I can relate to those feelings. I just think that when you're, when you're, when you're really dealing with life or death issues, you kind of have these moments where it's just like, Okay, none of them are here. <laughs> yeah. Battling this with me. None of them are feeling it every day. None of them are are actually, I mean, you know, 
the prayers and the whatever they want to say that they're pouring into you. But in reality, when you go, you know, like as a kid going down into having surgery in those moments right before you're put to sleep, you're like, this is just me and God. There's no one else in this room. Yeah, it's definitely a, it's an alienating thing um, to be in a room that you know that you're going to go to sleep in and they're going to cut you open. I mean, I've had seven surgeries in my life and, you know, my cousin who he passed away from cystic fibrosis when he was like 15 oh, or 16. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So I, I, I can remember like when you, when you say that what you were going through, like there's, vis there's visuals that I have in my head of watching um, my cousin go through the things that he was going through with that. So um, I think How it's, how long ago did he pass away? Oh, this was years. I mean, it's been okay. more than more than a decade or more. Oh yeah, long time ago. Wow. But uh mm -hmm. yeah, it's sorry to hear that. It's <laughs> crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? How like through those things is when you really find God, essentially. Right. Yes. I there there's a beauty in in um I don't want to say like a an unlived life because that's not really true, but there's a beauty. There's a beauty in being aware that death is imminent. Yeah. And you know how it's going to happen. Um it's it's right on your doorstep more often than you'd like it to be. Um yeah. when I was when I was eight, um, my best friend who also had CF passed away. So I, I got to really watch his process and it, it was just life shattering, life altering for me. Um, mm -hmm. but this is at a time, I'm not sure how like familiar you are with like the history of people with CF or whatever, but, um, when I was younger at this time, um, people with CF could be around each other and spend a lot of time together. We used to go to CF camps together, Yeah. Mm -hmm. but then at one point that all stopped. So this was uh, just because of like cross-contamination and infectious disease control re regulations, that's no longer allowed. But at the time when I was younger, we used to have, you know, like um, group meetings and be together all, all as a community. So it just got harder and harder to watch uh, your community get sicker and sicker and sicker. Yeah. Did so you have... Did you have to wear the vest? I oh yeah, I do. I still do twice a day. Yeah. Oh my gosh, my. Yeah, I still do twice a day. Is that giving you sorry? <laughs> no, it's fine. I just when you said like camps, I just imagined every all of you guys hanging out with the vest on. Yeah. It's like well, talking and. At camp, we didn't have the vest. I didn't have the vest at camp. I was, okay. This is before the vest was. But you know what we did? We would sit in this huge gymnasium. Uh -huh. <laughs> And it was like a four wall gymnasium yeah. mm -hmm. and, and like this wall was where you would get your breathing treatment. And then yep. this wall was where you would get the respiratory therapist who would do physical CPT, like yep. mm -hmm. on your chest, like beat on your chest. And then the next wall, you'd get another breathing treatment. And then the next wall, you'd get more CPT. And so we'd just go around like cabin by cabin, lined up on the floor, doing your treatments in a rotation. Wow. I know. That's, it's really interesting. That's, that's wild. Yeah, I, I, I can remember just we would be having holiday parties and my, you know, my cousin be off in the corner with the vest and you could hear it going and just, yeah. 
you know, it just becomes, it becomes something that you just, it's just, that's what you see. It is. And, and um, so I do the vest here twice a day. It's still mm -hmm. part of my life, but in November of 2019, I started taking a, a, a new, um, it's called a genetic modulator drug. Um, and so it's, it, it intends to, and it really has kind of treat the genetic mutations of cystic fibrosis, not just the symptoms of cystic uh -huh. fibrosis, which is huge because my entire life has just been managing symptoms, man managing bacteria, managing infection. Um, <clears throat> never actually felt, I mean, I remember being on, you know, IV, IV antibiotics for almost two years to treat an infection that had been growing in my lungs and I never felt better. <laughs> it was just like, um. Yeah. They're just trying to not make it worse. So I started this genetic modulator drug and, and it's, uh, I mean, I still have issues, but it's been, it's been miraculous. I could not have had this conversation with you prior to 2019 without coughing my entire way through it or being out wow. of breath and needing to take a break. So, um, it's, it's really been a miracle. Trikafta has really been a miracle. Well, that's amazing that you have that and that you're here. And so. again, I turn it back to like, uh, is is that God performing miracles? Or is that God giving man the power to perform miracles? And all of that happened. All of that happens not because some church with less than 300 members in San Antonio, Texas is praying. Yeah. Like, that's happening because God's doing it. <laughs> because mm -hmm. we're so spiritual. We got... <laughs> But we feel so cool knowing that we prayed for something and then it happening. And then you kind of feel a little bit of power in that. And yes. you're like, yeah, I made that happen or, you know. Yeah, they're they're taking a lot of, uh, I used to tell my, my husband, uh, and now he, we, we say it just as a joke, but um, they're very proud of their humility. They take a lot of pride <laughs> in their humility. Oh, my gosh. Like, no, I'm it doesn't so glad y'all said that. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I take... I'm very proud of my humility. <laughs> it's just it's just a wealth of images of, of of leaders on stage just saying, praying these prayers of just like just oh I'm so oh just saying that. Oh <laughs> I know. It's triggering. But um but but yeah, we, I mean we search for meaning and everything and we want to feel that we did something. So well I'm glad yeah. that you know where you're at now with that. It's amazing. Um, so like, what was church like in the beginning for you? I, I am um, almost compartmentalized these two things because uh -huh. while I was being abused and mistreated by individuals in the church, there were, there was this whole other side of church that was comforting and warm. And I, I I argue with my mother sometimes, even now, because we talk about people with good hearts. Yeah. And what, if that is real, like do people with good hearts do bad things? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that part. But th there, we did a lot together. Um, when the mission team came to San Antonio, a majority of them uh, had no money and struggled immensely financially um, yeah. some of them had family members or had really good careers like there was a doctor in our group who had an established practice who did well and 
he hired another family within the church. And so they, they seem to at least have food um, <laughs> while my family was on social services and really struggling uh, just, just, you know, for meals even. Um, and so we did a lot together because it was almost like we could feed each other. We could take care of each other if we were all together. Yeah. So that first couple of years, um, there was a lot of, it, it was a really deeply connected community, a deeply connected church. Um, I, I think more so than just like the every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Friday Bible talk. It, it was, it was like replacing family, yeah. which is pretty mm-hmm. sad because my, my, both of my parents have an amazing family of amazing aunts and uncles on both sides that really loved us and cared for us. But, but we really uh, pushed away so many of those relationships because they weren't a part of the church. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, um, it just became a family. It was almost no separation mm-hmm. ever. It it quickly becomes it becomes your world. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was my world for sure. Um. So so you when you said that the the mission team to San San Antonio, you mean the mission team leaving San Antonio to go to Dallas? No, I mean so we went to Dallas. Okay. And we trained a leader and trained like the people who were going to go back to San Antonio on a mission team. Uh huh. Training classes, which. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I didn't participate in the training itself. I just remember my parents being there a lot. Um, and then in, I think, 91 or 92, that same group of people who went to the Boston Conference, who were part of the Mainline Church of Christ, along with, uh, you know, an additional 10 or 15 people from Dallas or from the church there, moved back to San Antonio to plant a church. Wow. Yes. Back and forth, back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> so when we came back to San Antonio, um, kind of an interesting thing here. My parents, uh, my mom was born and raised in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And my dad was born in an orphanage in Ireland. So them finding each other was just a very unique like path of how they got there. Yeah. Uh, so then, you know, when my dad finished college, he started making um, boots. That was what he did. He, uh, I don't want to say became uh, famous, but he became pretty popular because he made, at the time here in San Antonio, we had a polo club. Mm-hmm. Like a, and so uh, there was a very, very wealthy man here who played polo and had a polo club. And, all, and some of his best friends were like world leaders. And so my dad ended up making boots for a lot of people at that polo club. And he became um, kind of like the boot guy. John's custom boots was like the thing for quite a while. And uh, when he, when I was diagnosed, it became really hard for him to uh, stay on, stay afloat in that business, just taking care of a sick child. So he, they ended up, he ended up selling the business or closing the business um, to join the church also. So wow. I had to give that up because it just wasn't, it was, it didn't line up with what they wanted him to do. I mean, I, th- I think in reality, it wasn't doing well anyway, mm-hmm. but I think that he knew he couldn't do both. He couldn't commit to the church and have this life of, of traveling and making boots for, I mean, he made boots for Prince Charles. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He had he had quite a successful career doing that, but 
I think that it just didn't align with, you know, they wanted a more godly centered, more church centered life. And it just wasn't going to line up. Mm. Man. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. The things that you give up, not real. No. It was like nothing could ever get in the way or right. nothing, or even like a hint of it getting in the way. It had right. to and, and this, the, I think the crux of it for my parents was salvation. Yeah. They, they wanted to be saved and they wanted something better for their children. Uh-huh. And if you talk to them today, that's what they would say is that the decisions that they made to do this were all centered around having a more righteous life for their children to be godly, almost jokingly now looking at it safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And loved, you know, that's what they wanted. And so all of these decisions that they did were because they, they were taught and they believed that salvation was dependent upon these individual people make, helping them make decisions. Mm -hmm. And who can fault them for that when you really think about it? Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a parent, I just want what's good for my kid. And if you're telling yeah. me this is good for my kid, I'm going to try it. Yeah. And if you say, I mean, that word salvation, I mean, that's the crux for everybody. Yeah, it is. You know? Um, So you're in San Antonio and it was like, you felt you had a family. It felt good. I mean, yeah. It seems that I can tell that you were saying it kind of was hard because you didn't have a lot. Right. I, I mean, it, it, it's like there's two sides to that coin. Yeah. And and while there was, you know, families that really cared about us, families that we were close to, people who loved us and cared, there was always the undertone and underlying uh, issues with um, the defendants listed. So yeah. mm -hmm. Marty, Nancy, Mark, and Cindy. Um, I, I mean, just, you know, I know we use the word controlling a lot, uh, when we talk about the ICOC, but this was beyond, this is beyond control. This was mm -hmm. torturous, you know? Um, and even, even as a really young kid, it was bad. So while we had this, um, community of people, I never felt safe and I never felt, um, I never, you know, it's like looking at a room full of people that you think know what's happening and don't care. So, but then at the same time, I'm supposed to feel like these are my people and my family and, and they would do anything for me. And, and, you know, I would go to church together and sing songs together and worship together. And, and, um, you know, at, at that, even in those exact moments, there was abuse happening. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it's hard to really um, give it, give it one word or give it one feeling. There's, mm -hmm. there's just a multitude of feelings when I think about, you know, my childhood as it relates to the con to the church. And so from what it sounds like, you know, the abuse happened very early on. It did. So, um, really some of my first some of my first memories of uh things happening were even um even before we left dallas Got and it. not because i remember left for dallas not because i remember anything other than like the house we were in mm -hmm. and i just know that you know we lived in that house before or th that house was before we moved to dallas 
So I don't really know how old I was, but uh, I mean, I, I was under the age of five. Okay. And then because I have uh, a sibling who also experienced similar things and she's a little bit older, she, she's able to give it more of a, a year mark and a time frame because we were abused together. Mm-hmm. So it happened before you were a part of the church and then just kind of followed you guys into it? It happened before we were a part of the ICOC. Okay. Yes. Um, but we did our first um, outcry, I guess. Our, mm-hmm. The first time we ever told anybody, actually, it was my sister who was the first person to ever tell anybody outside of um, outside of each other, really, mm-hmm. uh, was in Dallas. Okay. And the the at that time, I think the leadership felt like um, it was just kids stuff. Uh-huh. And I feel like because I didn't really understand how to articulate at that time what was really happening, I didn't argue. I didn't try to. I, I'm honestly, nobody ever asked me. Nobody ever asked me like what happened. What did she do? Yeah. Nobody asked me. So I didn't, um, so I didn't, I wasn't given that space. And because I wasn't given that space and because these were already people that I was told to obey that are closer to God than me, that have created this life for us, Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have a voice at all. So my, my first memory of, of ever having a conversation with anybody at church about what was happening was it was me and my sister and the young girl, Nancy, at the time who was abusing us, her parents, a few of the leaders of the church in Dallas and my parents sitting in our living room and having this discussion about how sorry she is, um, how she promises she'll never do it again, um, that that they're going to get her help. Um, and I just, re- I, I, I remember feeling like my, my insides were, were like being crushed because I'm sitting at like my dad's feet under this chair that has like legs. And I remember feeling like I wanted to get under the chair and hide because I just couldn't understand at five or six years old why I'm having to talk about these things or hear about these things in a room full of people who are lording over us mm-hmm. and my abuser. So um, your the abuser was a kid or? Well, yes, but she's, uh, I think, eight years older than me. Okay. Eight or seven years older than me. And it, not because I, not because I have any other experiences with this, but just as you get older and as you are a kid, you know what's playful and what's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was not playful. I mean, we were threatened with by this young girl uh, that we would get kicked out of the church, that mm-hmm. nobody would want to be our friends anymore. Uh, and and the thing is that this, this is the same child of the family that we met at Mother's Day Out. Mm-hmm. So we're already talking about a five or six year uh, relationship with them. So my my parents became their best friends. They became best friends very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was almost like they targeted my parents 
now that I think about it. It's almost like they knew that there was a, they had a sick kid and there was a weakness there. And so they just, they, they just sucked them right in. And I mean, every, everything, everything we did for the majority of my life was whatever they told us to do. Yeah. Including keeping my mouth shut about what their daughter and their son was doing. What a incredibly terrifying situation. I'm yeah. thinking about a five-year-old or however old you were at the time with limited ways to process anything that's going on in this in the world, let mm -hmm. alone being in a room full of people talking at you, lording over you. I mean, I'm I've worked I was an elementary school teacher for a decade before this. And really? so like what did you teach? Sorry, my husband teaches fifth grade. That's how I asked. It's okay. Um, I taught everything for a few oh, okay. years and then I taught <clears throat> specifically math at a Quaker school for two years before I recently quit. Wow. Yeah, and, and I mean I and I have a I have a kid who's who's four and a half, and just the idea of like mm. kids want to feel safe first right. right and because they're this this whole world is new and they're creating everything they're understanding and and i'm sorry that you had to be in in that type of situation i can't even imagine the just that trying to find the words for it but it's just you know yeah i i wish i i i wish it had stopped I mean, I think if, if, mm -hmm. if after that conversation, um, they would have got her help and maybe gotten us help and made some space there yeah. so we could separate ourselves a little. Um, and e even if not, even if the abuse had just stopped there, yeah, um, I, I think so much would have been different because, you know, Unfortunately, we live in a world where people take advantage of children all the time. It's very mm -hmm. unfortunate. It's very sad. Um, and so I think that I had, I would have been able to probably recover, at least mentally, in some ways, if it had stopped there. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't. It just became progressive. And then, and then her, her brother continued, her brother kind of I don't want to say took over because that sounds weird, mm -hmm. but her, then her brother became our main abuser. Um, mm -hmm. It was almost like, uh, you know, it just, it transitioned to something bigger than it even yeah. was in that immediate conversation. Yeah. So, it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. So I, I don't know what the leadership's role was at that point. I know that there was a lot of conversations about her and her getting help and who's hurting her and it really just became about her and not us. So your power was taken. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 100%. And then, and then her parents uh, kind of continued to get like more and more responsibility kind of uh, became bigger and bigger leaders within mm -hmm. the church. And it was almost like my parents were pushed down so much, not that they ever, I think that was an issue that my parents had or that the church had with my parents is that my parents never sought to become any type of leader. Um, my dad was the administrator for the church for a while here in San Antonio, but uh, they didn't want a title. That's not what their desires mm -hmm. were. And I think that that bothered 
uh, some people in leadership. And I think now looking back, it was really a decision that they made because they did they didn't want. Now I think they didn't. They saw that people in leadership weren't real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents were just real disciples, just trying to not mess up every day, you know, <laughs> and being led by people who don't think they ever do mess up every day. So. It's such a hard, it's such a hard thing because like your situation is a very much, how it was handled is a very much a church thing. Oh I man, it's way worse, but yes. But, but. Yeah. I think about the idea, and I mean churches and like churches in a whole, like like not even yes. ours. It's, right, absolutely. You don't handle things outside of the church. Right. You handle it within because that's the supposed to be what's supposed to fix it. Like right. you know, it's like, for instance, like you coming forward. This is supposed to be the place where you coming forward is the right thing to do and the safe thing to do. Right. But then in turn, what happens is the exact opposite. And it becomes what would happen in the world, you know, anywhere else. And and so Or not even. I mean, I think I think the world the world even does a better job. Yeah. <laughs> the world even does it. I mean, right, there's a lot well, of room. I I think about <laughs> my job as an educator. And so like as soon as you like take the role you're you're told like you are now what is the word like you're an advocator for these kids so right. you now have to leave oh, you're talking about mandatory reporting yeah mandatory reporting or anything like that now if something comes up to you even if it's a hint of something you don't play you don't mess around you got to right. talk about it you right. got to tell people you know and and right but like in in churches and in this system it's like it's so weird that it's the opposite, you know? Right. Well, I I think in the country, but definitely in the state of Texas, uh, right right now, I, I know that even church leaders, church, uh, I guess if they're in the ministry, which means they're staffed by the church, they're all mandatory reporters now too. Okay. But that's a whole, I mean, we're, we're going to be here a little, a little while. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so you you go through that and so it never stops um right and it, it continued until like you're in high school i mean was there yeah so um you know i don't there was never really more conversations about it after that i remember my parents checking in every once in a while um not specifically asking that, you know, like, are you guys being hurt? Is anybody hurting you? But I do remember them. There would be, there would be these minor incidences or almost like she or he would get caught, but there was always a reasoning. There was always an explanation for it. There was always like, oh, they're so sorry. They didn't mean to, or, you know, it was always just kind of brushed aside. Mm -hmm. And I remember my mom and dad would be like, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? And, and, um, you know, I don't know if I ever felt like I could really tell them. So there was. I mean, why would you after that right. first? Right. And situation. so, um, I think that she, 
she's she stopped really being physically abusive physically sexually abusive um I feel like one of my last memories was probably around middle school mm -hmm. um the other really strange thing is that and this just goes to show like the level of of uh, control and the level that of uh the reach that they had, I guess, in our lives. Uh -huh. So um, I think when I started fourth or fifth grade here in, in San Antonio, uh, my parents moved, I don't want to say like in the outskirts, but they moved in a neighborhood further away from like the center of the city mm -hmm. where a lot of the church members lived close to the center of the city. And my parents moved out towards the Northeast side of town, which mm -hmm. was, a good 15 or 20 minutes from everybody, which prior to this, we all lived really close to, well, relatively close to each other and did everything together. So this is kind of like a against advice type of thing because it was too Oh, far. geez. Against the like, advice. Against Oof. advice. Yeah. Oh, it was oh, just oh. too far, you know, for us to be, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, the thing is, it's not even like, it's not even like a small town or anything like that. It's just a little bit further out. And there's so much bias. I mean, we were closer to our schools that my parents wanted us to go. My parents didn't have any money either. So it was like we were renting this house from this lady who was friends with another lady who really just wanted to help us out. Yeah. It wasn't even like we were trying to get away from anybody, which I wish that would have been the reasoning. But it was it just it was orchestrated in that way that this is the best move financially for us. Mm -hmm. And it was just too far from Mark and Cindy for their comfort. Yeah. So shortly after they moved to our side of town. Oh, <laughs> and wow. So we went to middle school together. We went to high school together. Um, and then uh, a house that they were renting near us. Uh, I'm not sure what happened, but for some reason they were either kicked out or the lease was up or something. And they had like a two week gap in between where they were, where they were versus where they were going to move into. Mm -hmm. And because we were in the area and we went to school together because they could tell my parents to do anything. They actually moved in with us for a short amount of time. And Jeez. it was, it was hell. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, we couldn't shower safely. Um, you know, my poor brother just, it was just terrible. It was such a terrible time. Um, so I, I think it was during that period that, uh, she really stopped her physical assaults on us and it became more of her brother became more aggressive towards my sister and mm -hmm. I and my brother, but more towards my sister and I. So, um, it went all the way up into, so it, it, during that time, it was, it was a lot in a very short amount of time, a lot oh, of, uh, a lot of just gross, terrible things. And then when they moved out, uh, they were still close. So we still went to high school together. And, um, so yeah, uh, I don't, I don't really remember like, I don't re really remember physically the last time she assaulted me. Mm -hmm. I just remember transitioning from her sister into her brother. And I mean, when you were living 
all living together, could parents just tell it was weird? Or, I mean, it just get pushed under the rug. I mean, I, I guess I'm assuming it just got all pushed under the rug. I don't know. I haven't asked my parents specifically about that. I, there was a lot of, because they were older than my parents as disciples, because they mm-hmm. were Bible talk leaders, um, you know, for them, their children were infallible. Mm-hmm. So, so even <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. I yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they weren't preachers kids until oh. later in life, but they definitely wore that title as if they were, and, you know, just became, they, they just could do no wrong. I mean, this is, a, it's not really my story to share, but I'll share it. I'll re- I remember, um, taking my sister to middle school because mm-hmm. she uh, she's a little bit older than me. So we didn't go to middle school together. She went to middle school and my brother and I were still in elementary school. And I remember go- visiting her middle school and from the parking lot, um, Marty and his friends, him first, because I remember seeing him and knowing him. Like, mm-hmm. That's the guy I go to church with. That guy just lived with us, what have you, exposing himself to yeah. us. Yeah, and in and my you know, so it was it, and I and my mom was so upset. Of course, she addressed it with his parents. She addressed it with the school. She could not. Be, I mean, we were we're out in public. This is not. Yeah. It was, but this is something that she saw. This is something that happened in public at a school like so much wrong, right? And so the school reprimanded him and the church asked us to forgive him. (laughs) I know. Hold on a second. Insane. I feel like it's like, you watch those Netflix documentaries or Hulu documentaries about stuff like this and you're like, this can't be real. This can't Uh. be real. And you're like, no, it's real. I I've had I've had a kid, um, I've had an instance with a child where they exposed themselves on a playground. It was an eight year old, and it was just because they had to go to the bathroom. Mm. But like that's still treated. It was treated so seriously, and and it if ultimately you know it was it wasn't a pun. It you know it they didn't get punished because of the situation. But like, I think about a middle school student, you know, 12, 13, exposing themselves at a school. I mean, that would be, you probably wouldn't be there again. Right. But it, it, it became like, <clears throat> it was just an accident. That wasn't what he was doing. Got it. There's always some way to minimize responsibility for them. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Um, um, so just, you know, it just carried on. I mean, it, it really did. And um, it, the weird part is, and, and this is not, not that I don't want to talk about it. It's just hard to talk about it because it, mm-hmm. it, it brings up a lot of emotion for me is that it's, it, it's so sick, but like, I loved them. They were my brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, I didn't want them to get hurt and I didn't want them to get in trouble, which I, doesn't make sense you know now thinking about it but no it makes it makes a hundred percent sense in the system that we were in 
Yeah. And and I, I understand what you're saying because there was this sense that what we were a part of was special, what we were a part of was important, what we were a part of was was the kingdom. It was it it was it. And so no, you didn't want them to get hurt. And however shitty that sounds to people, I I understand what you're saying, what you were feeling. Right. Um these I were go ahead, I'm sorry. I mean, these were supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. These were supposed to be the people that you were going to see in heaven, no matter what. Right. Yeah. When they hurt, you were hurting. When they were upset or when they were going through hard times, we were supposed to be there and then vice versa. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. I remember this uh, specific situation where, um, I mean, it, the weird thing is also is that, um, you know, we would, we were, told to you know this like whole idea of like encouragement dates and dating only in the church and yeah stuff. so uh -huh. at that time there wasn't a whole lot of other people it wasn't a pool <laughs> big pool to swim in was there like, no so a lot of times we ended up being with them and in, in in the idea of like a dating group which was not at all what we wanted but um i remember you know my sister coming home from one of these nights and and being really mistreated and she can share if she wants like that part of what happened to her but mm -hmm. it was really really bad and so she came home we shared a room and she was crying and her her shirt had been ripped and um she told my dad what happened and my dad drove like he was going to drive to marty's house and beat him up mm -hmm. um he says the spirit led him to the church leader's house instead so they drove to his house he drove to his house and together they drove to marty's house and and i guess went off on him or something i'm not really sure but my dad came home later that night and he pulled my sister and i aside and he said if marty ever puts his hands on you again i'm going to kill him and i thought i can never tell him ever again because i don't want him to kill him yeah instead of feeling like comforted by that i felt scared Mm -hmm. And I felt like, you know, I didn't want Marty to get hurt. I didn't want my dad to hurt him. You know, it, it's just such a weird dynamic. It's such a weird position to be in because mm -hmm. while you're being hurt, <laughs> you know, it's under this guise or this umbrella of like sanctity yeah. because they're godly people. And so it, it kind of, it it becomes very confusing very yeah, and you're pro you're growing up trying to process the reality that you're in now as well yeah it's just a big old soup of just mess it was and the leadership was very um this is another hard one because i i the leadership at the time were people i deeply deeply love but i i i think they were so lied to and mm -hmm. so manipulated um by mark and cindy and th that family that i i don't now i know that um you know it was just a lot of lies like mm -hmm. they said that they had talked to them and they were getting help i don't think they ever really talked to them they said that they were okay with whatever whatever and i don't think they really were i think we were it was almost like they were the middleman 
in between us and the leadership here in San Antonio at that time. This is before, this is before the Tollovers. So it, it was a weird dynamic. It was just a really strange uh, time and place. It was just. Yeah. Well, there's also the element of that. You, you mentioned like if, if they're any type of leader, there was this sense of like, it's almost like how military does things. Like you just listen to what they're saying and like, you don't, you don't go past other people for instance, mm. but also yeah. if they were above you, they essentially knew more and you all ultimately had to listen to whatever they had to say. Right. And it just, it didn't matter. That was even to the level of even your discipling partner, you right. know, and then, yeah. you know, they were the ones that were, so it was like these levels of stuff and if you were just a person i mean you know you were just looked at these people as they were always above you and if it was a bible talk leader they're way above and if it was a church leader oh my gosh and then if you got to meet a region leader or whatever and then a world sector leader and then you know whatever the last title was it just like you just didn't you didn't disagree with them you listen to what they had to say you treated them differently even their kids were treated differently it was just this you don't rock the boat um right and if they're preachers kids mm -hmm. just consider yourself lucky to be friends with them of course oh my gosh you mean you get to be friends with them that's amazing you know how much better yeah and if you mess up don't worry they'll help they'll get you to heaven just hold their hand and they'll get you there yeah I know. And it's, and it's crazy because if you, if you go against them, then you're risking salvation because it's not just risking a church. Like, yeah, you could leave the church. Sure. Everybody could leave the church, but what we were told and what was systematic, I don't know, just, just hammered into us with this was the place, this was God's right. kingdom. So you're not leaving a church, you're leaving God. Right. And as a child in middle school and in high school, you're not, I wasn't allowed to have relationships outside the church. I didn't spend time with people I went to school with. Yeah. I didn't do any extracurricular activity. The only friends I had outside of church were people I was in the hospital with, the nurses. Like yeah. I didn't, I didn't have friendships. You know, I remember my brother playing soccer a lot when we were younger and mm -hmm. my parents having these conversations of, the only reason we're doing this is to reach out to these people and bring them to church. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we didn't participate in those kinds of things to build relationships, which as an adult, now I'm learning that I'm not really good at that. I, I'm not good at building friendships with people because I, because I, I was taught and I was trained to believe that if you don't go to church with them, then they're bad people, which as a child, when you're being hurt by the good people in your church, how, how much worse are the people outside the church? And that's mm. how I felt for very many years is that um, if I'm getting hurt by someone in church and these are supposed to be the safe people, then what's going to happen to me outside of church? So it was very fear. There was a lot of fear there. Um, yeah. It <laughs> If, if this is happening in church, what's going to happen outside the world? Oh my God. I mean, you know, and it's, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember being afraid of, um, like certain uncles and certain 
situations, certain relationships that my parents had built prior to being in the church and trying to keep, these were completely safe people who yeah. never hurt me and only wanted good for me. But I was in almost like, you know, I hate the word brainwashed because I just feel like it, it, it's almost like a light way of putting it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. so ugly. I remember, uh, I was over at someone's house that wasn't a part of the church and their dad's garage fridge had beer in it. And I remember freaking out so hard. Like, oh, I can't believe that I'm here in a place where they would have beer. Oh, oh, my sinners. Sinners. So, <laughs> so terrible. It is. So did you eventually get baptized? Yes. So I got baptized um, the December before I turned 15, <clears throat> um, which is also a weird time because it was I was really not well health wise. Um, and so I, I remember and that was another weird thing is that I ended up studying the Bible with um, Cindy, who is the parent of my abusers. So I never I never shared anything about mm what was going on with us uh -huh. when I studied the Bible. Um, so I got baptized in December of 98. Mm -hmm. I was 14 years old. Um, shortly after that, I was hospitalized for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that whole year, actually, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. So I was baptized at 14. Um, I, I was still still at that time as I was a freshman in high school and Marty was a senior in high school at that time. And at school, he was very physical. Um, uh -huh. Like he would find me and like, you know, corner me in a hallway and, and just be really gross. And so even then, even just within weeks after my baptism, there was stuff going on. And he, he had been baptized when he was, 13 or 14 years old as well. And that's kind of an interesting thing because a lot of people talk, have, I've seen conversations or I've, I've been shared with conversations that, that part of the defense of his behavior is that he wasn't a disciple. And not only is that not true, um, but I don't understand how that is a defense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So I, mean... I know, I know. So if, if you don't mind me asking, what made you want to be like, even with everything going on and you're seeing this and you, you still wanted to get baptized? I did. And, you know, at, at, um, I feel like a little later in life, there were a lot of teens around my age at that time who felt like their baptism wasn't, um, I don't want to say real, but they didn't fully understand the idea of living a life committed to kind of a holier walk with God. Mm -hmm. But I really did. I I really felt like at that moment what I was doing was committing to try and live a life that would be pleasing to God. That's what I felt like I was committing mm -hmm. to. And I wanted that for myself. Yeah. Also, I I dealt with and I believed that salvation was critical and dependent upon my baptism. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I necessarily believe that now. I'm working on that. Mm -hmm. Just understanding mm -hmm. God's grace and where that fits into this. But at that time, I believed that my life was probably going to be shorter than a lot of other people's. And I didn't want to feel 
at that time, I didn't want to feel uh, insecure about mm. what was going to happen to me if I did pass away. But it was very, that was very tangible to me. It wasn't like the idea that someday I might get sick and pass away and I would like to know. I was sick. Yeah. I was dealing with that. And so it, that, that insecurity was real. And I didn't feel like I was getting baptized into a church or into their ideology. I, I really felt like I was making a decision to commit my life to God. Isn't it crazy? It's just, it's another example of how wild it is when you're dealing with what you're dealing with, just the different perspectives you have on life, on what's possible of just reconciling with things, um, even at such a young age. Um, right. I don't feel now that uh -huh. I now looking back and now as an adult with a 13 year old daughter, I don't, you know, my, my feelings on baptism now are different and, mm -hmm. and the reasoning for doing something like that are, are different. And I, I feel like the church takes scripture out of context for so many things mm -hmm. to justify, you know, their, their reasoning and to explain, uh, their, their cause for your obedience. Um, yeah. And that makes it hard because I, I wanted to be an obedient 13 year old, 14 year old. I wanted to be uh, some, something my parents were proud of. And all of those things were contingent upon my baptism. Jeez. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, which, you know, now having a daughter around that age, I feel like there's almost nothing she could do that would make me unproud. But <laughs> When, for me, yeah. I didn't feel that way. I felt like this was the way to make my parents proud. I know they loved me. I know they were proud of me. But publicly, this was a statement I could make that would share my gratitude to them for being members of this church. Mm -hmm. Could share my agreeance with their decisions. That's what it felt like at 14. Is that this isn't just a, a decision that I'm committing to do this. It's also showing my gratitude towards my parents for bringing me to God, which yeah. could have happened anyway. But at the time, that's where I was at. Yeah, I I can definitely relate to that feeling of knowing that you're wanting to show your parents this. You're right. wanting to do it for them. Um, right. You know, I think for my, my, you know, my dad talked to me when I was I think in high school and it kind of alleviated a lot of things and he was able to have conversations with me about, you know, his love for me and stuff like that. And it kind of shifted, but there was, there was this sense that like, this is, this is what I need to do for them. Right. Um, and it's just, it's, it's such, it shouldn't be that, you know, it shouldn't be because of that. You know, it shouldn't. yeah, it shouldn't. And if it if it is, if that is a family decision that you're making, that our children are going to get baptized mm -hmm. or what have you, you could do it privately. I feel like the church does these baptisms and like everybody's invited and everybody needs to come and see what this person's doing. And it's like, yeah. again, taking away that that 
really intimate connection you could have in a religious household or in a godly relationship with God or your parents or whatever. But they, they take that away by saying it has to be a public display. Yeah. Why, why are you making me do something publicly that I don't want to do? I did not want to do it publicly. Oh, yeah. I'd rather have just done it, you know, in the backyard or something. I don't know. But uh, everybody had to see it. And everybody had to share. And everybody had to pray. And everybody, why? If this is about me and God, it why is. are you all forcing me to do this in front of everybody? I hated my baptism. Did you? Oh, I I hated it because um I mean I'm 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 a little bit of a bigger dude, not, you know, not incredibly large, but but when I got into our baptistry cuz the baptistry that we used was um it was it was just like a the part of a spa like someone had oh. it was just the insert, you know what I mean, yeah. and they would just uh-huh. wheel it out and somebody kept yeah. it at their house. So they would I just the horse trough. Oh, horse trough. Yeah. Hers is a, a little <laughs> bit bigger. I wish it would have been in like a pool or oh, something yeah. because when they filled it in, they put a little too much water in it. And so like when my dad gets in and then I get in and I notice that the water goes all the way to the top of this thing. Oh my gosh. And like, if you're any, even a little bit chubby in high school, <laughs> you know, the feeling the of you're very aware of your body. You're aware of like not falling. You're aware of all those things. Right. And so how things fit. All I could think was this, this, I was like, I don't know about this. So then my dad, you know, I do the thing, I go underwater and then I get up and I see people laughing. Oh no. Everywhere. And it was like on the front row. And cause what had happened was when I went under the whole, I mean, it was like a tidal wave. And so it was, and so if like for you, you didn't want to do it publicly. Like for me, I wanted to do it publicly because I wanted to be in, I wanted to be included. Mm. Like I have this sense of always wanting to be included from coming from a, it was just a lower socioeconomic level and the area that we were in, it was, a you know, and different yeah. aspects of that, but I wanted to be included. I wanted people to say, okay, he's baptized. He's in, he's in now. Yeah. He's one of us. And then, so it was, it was really important to me. And then to have that happen was, you know, I still think about it Wow, almost 20 years That's ago, terrible. but, but I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, people were baptized almost against their will sometimes like this is, this is how you're going to be baptized. Like if you would that, say, just take some water out, like what? Get to it right here. Um, right. It just was like, but that was our thing. That was what we were about. The goal was to baptize. The goal was to move. The goal was to be bigger. And so right. this is this was the show, you right. know? And so, and to have, even having a, a parent baptizing kid was even twice as much. Huge, of a show. huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, not long before that, not long before my baptism, I'd been in the hospital for I, I think it was a longer stay. I think it ended up being like 28 days or something like that. And at that time, there was uh, the hospital here in San Antonio was doing like a um, where the, the nurses in training at military school close by were doing like rounds at the hospital. Yeah. And there was two or three nurses that uh, were t- helping to take care of me. And they were young girls, you know, young 20s. 
and they didn't have any family here in San Antonio. They didn't know anybody here in San Antonio. And we became very friendly with each other. And so they would actually stay the night in my room with me and hang out with me and play cards with me. And this is, you know, pre all kinds of Nintendo gadgets, but we did have like a, like a Sega in the room. So they mm-hmm. would play Sega and we'd hang out and stuff. And um, I invite, obviously invite what invited them to church because oh, you had to you can't not. And so they ended up coming out to church and both of them ended up getting baptized. Wow. I know it was, it was pretty remarkable at the time, just thinking about the closeness that you could have with somebody who was taking care of you in, mm-hmm. in a very intimate way and that they really wanted to commit to being, I, I think they wanted in kind of like what you're talking about. They were here without family. They were here without any kind of community. And this is how they felt like they could build friendships with people. And so they were young twenties and I was 13 or 14 years old and they ended up getting baptized. Uh, and that was also done very publicly. Like these are, you know, young girls that were taking care of Stephanie when she was in the hospital and now they're getting baptized because of Stephanie's faith and her courage to share with them. And it was just very public. And, and, um, I mean, I, I remember feeling very proud of that, like proud that not that they'd come to church, but just that they liked me enough to hang out with me in my room at Mm -hmm. 13 years old. And they were 20 years old. Like that felt cool. I wasn't, you know, trying to tell them that they were, obviously I did not think that they were bad people, but that that was the idea was mm-hmm. you're not good until you come to this church and get baptized, you know? So, um, yeah. but it was kind of a remarkable time just to think that, you know, that not that I guess that they would feel so moved in a way to do something like that just because they felt, you know, close to us, I guess. I mean, it's coming from a pure place. Yeah, it was. It when really you, was. When you find truth in a pure place, it's very infectious. And people want it, you know, man, I bet that, I mean, that probably when they got baptized and they were saying, oh man, it was, I bet it was almost like trumpets were playing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it it was a, it was a weird time because I had been so sick and, um, you know, my, my mom at that time was really struggling to stay with me every night. I mean, Mm -hmm. That's just what we did, but it kind of gave her a little bit of, um, and I don't want to say freedom, but it made her feel a little bit more relaxed that there were these two young, you know, in the military college girls, nursing school there to try and help take care of me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, I think they wanted in the family. They want, Mm -hmm. my parents have, even though that my parents, you know, I think, were very heavily manipulated as well. My parents actually did a really, really good job of um, loving others and serving mm-hmm. others. And even I remember later in life when I got married, uh, my in-laws would tell me that my parents didn't treat them like they didn't go to church. Like they felt like other people they had met and other family members of theirs treated them differently because they weren't a part of the church. But my parents never did that. My parents are very welcoming, very to everybody. And even people would leave the church and my parents would still have them over against advice. My parents were just very loving and generous and welcoming people. And so I think that 
that's what at that time those two nurses that ended up kind of because they did Christmas with us and Thanksgiving with us as a family because they couldn't go home and so I think that's probably what they were drawn to more than the church that's a beautiful thing it it really is I'm grateful for my parents for that because I think it helped me Mm -hmm. uh, at least feel like they loved me you know yeah yeah my my dad he shared his faith with this 18 year old uh black guy what he was a checkout guy at a sears one oh, yeah. time. my dad was my dad was trying to get an anniversary present for my mom or whatever and just felt the urge to say hey you want to come to church and and it was like what you were saying how he, he quickly became a part of our family even to the point like he's he, 30 years later when i get married he's the groomsman in my wedding you know yeah. but it was that people there was a there was this infectiousness about some of a you know the yeah, love sure. and the serving right. of people that that people just you can't deny that and and, right. and it does you do want to be a part of that but i think the i think the part that is misleading for a lot of people is that the church created that in somebody but I think in reality, mm. it's there already. Yeah, they're just given a they're just given a community to express it better. Yeah. I think my parents were always like that. Mm-hmm. It's not because the church didn't make them that way. They just are those types of people. Yeah, I think of that scripture where it says, "The overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak." I mean, it's just coming from that place. And right. yeah. Church didn't make my parents that way. Church didn't make you. They just, it's just, yeah. they were there. That's how they were. It just gave them a an avenue to express it in a mm-hmm. deeper way, a more, maybe more religious way, but that is always their hearts. I mean, my, yeah. I think that's just who my parents are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. It's yeah. awesome. Um, so, so in high school, I mean, you get through high school, you're still. Yeah. So um, luckily for us, um, uh, Marty left San Antonio to go to college and, and a lot of things really kind of slowed down, I guess, really, because the physicality of the abuse was no longer there. Yeah. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, they were still in leadership. It was definitely an abusive friendship, definitely controlling, isolating and all of those things but there wasn't that fear of of physicality anymore and so after after high school I went to community college for a little while and um uh it was kind of a strange time because Marty left and then came back and so he became like the campus minister here um shortly after I I graduated from high school. The church was also in a weird place. It was shortly after the Henry Crete letters. And it was a really weird thing because the leaders of the church here in San Antonio at that time were from California. And they both, uh, I mean, as far as my memories of them were that they were very phenomenal people. Um, I don't think that they knew the depth and depravity of what was really happening because i i think i believe if they had known they would have taken action because there were other instances in the church at that time where things were going wrong and they reported people they went to the police 
they did certain things. So I think if they had known that it was to the level that it was, they would have done more. But we mm -hmm. were told that they did and that they didn't care. So we believed that. But in about 2004 or so, um, when the or 2003, when the Henry Crete letters came out, it really changed the dynamic of the church in San Antonio. Because at that time, our like father church or lead church was the Dallas church. And the Dallas church was also going through their own mess of stuff. And so there was this kind of separation between Dallas and San Antonio. And there was some misappropriation of funds that was shared about in a weird Wednesday service. And it was not malicious. So it made it seem strange that it would, why is this being shared if it wasn't malicious? It was just kind of a weird. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like transparency, but about the things we choose to be transparent about, which is yeah. not transparency. Um, so the leaders of the church here moved back to California because I think they just felt like it was just, this is just not the place for them anymore. And shortly after that, um, the church hired the Tollivers from South Africa. And I think one of the interesting things about that is because of the Henry Crete letters, um, that changed the hierarchy of the church, right? All that stuff happened with Kip, all that kind of the major region sector leaders or whatever you want to call them, no longer kind of had this on paper power to lord over these other minor, smaller churches. Mm -hmm. It was all inbred, but on paper, we're going to say we're all separated now. So I think what happened, uh, at least for San Antonio, um, was we hired a couple from South Africa. And now I see that really the reason that a lot of, uh, they call themselves missionaries, which is such a weird thing, but they, they were staff members in the church in South Africa and they lost a lot of their funding since churches were no longer going to be financially supporting one another. Mm -hmm. There was no longer any financial support for South Africa. So these missionaries decided to move back to the States. And one of those couples was hired by the church in San Antonio. So they started leading the church in about 2004. And there's a lot of like crazy stuff that happened before that. Um, at that time, uh, we were doing a lot of like college campus ministry stuff together. And uh, it's, Campus life in the church is so different. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> yeah. And it was even more different for me because it was um, one of the biggest things was that I they really wanted me to move out of my parents' house and move yeah. in to a household of other college sisters, college campus ministry girls, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, my parents just knew that health-wise that that was not going to work for me yeah i mean you remember because of your cousin i'm doing treatments all the time I'm in the hospital all the time taking care of myself can't come like second or third or first right i, I that has to be, be what I, yeah mm -hmm. it has to be what i do every day and in a campus household you really just do whatever the church tells you to do all the time and so there was a Strangely enough, the, the camp, the other campus minister at that time, who's now my brother-in-law, was 
really encouraging me to move out and encouraging my parents to get me to move out. And finally, my parents sat down with him and said, stop telling her to move out. She's not going to move out. She'll die. This will kill her. She yeah. won't survive it. Um, so that was a really weird time. I also had a boyfriend within the church at the time who was a really nice kid and and we were just young kids or whatever, but he was really nice. There's a lot of love there, but my his discipler at the time and the campus minister at the time was my abuser. And so all of the advice I was getting in that relationship was from him and his wife. And it was terrible. It was bad. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, I, I remember at one point I was having uh, I was having surgery on my chest, and I mean I loved this kid. He was a good kid. We had a good relationship, and they told me not to tell him because it would it would make him struggle with his purity. And that so you're having a surgery on your chest. Yeah. No. So stop I didn't it. tell him. No. Yeah, I know. So I didn't tell him because that's what I was told to do. And the surgery ended up going really badly. Oh, geez. And so he ended up showing up and I was so mad because I just, I, everything that I was doing was just making him struggle according to them. And he never said anything like that to me. He never we had a, we didn't even kiss. We had a very pure relation. Not that I'm saying you can. No, I, it's okay. Yeah. Just at that time, at the age we were, I mean, holding hands was huge for me. So we, we had this very innocent, very loving relationship and they totally messed it up for us. Like just this idea that, you know, at any given point I was going to just make him the devil, you know, like it, it just, it got really ugly, really fast. Um, everything, the whole relationship was just mandated and controlled by Marty and his wife. And so I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I don't even want to have a boyfriend anymore because I can't get away from them. Yeah. Everything I'm doing. And I think it's one thing when you're in controlled, in a controlled relationship by leadership and you're crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's because that's what they're telling you to do. You're coming every day. You're reaching out to the three people they said you needed to reach out to this week. You're tithing X amount because that's what you're told to do. You're putting up chairs or putting away chairs or stacking up chairs or whatever, all of these things that were told to you to do that we all did for the betterment of the kingdom by somebody who you think is also trying to please God and be holy as well. But I'm being told these things by somebody who's feeling who filled me up, felt me up in high school. Mm -hmm. Stared at my stared at the same chest that you were worried about my boyfriend being concerned about. You couldn't get your eyes off of me ever. Mm -hmm. You were accidentally groping me while you were. I mean, so it's 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 just so disgusting because there's it's he's not two people. He's one person mm -hmm. doing these things. So that was kind of early college. Um, things didn't really get weird, I would say, like as far as our relationship with the church as a whole mm -hmm. started to get really, and with that family started to get really bad when I met my now husband because mm -hmm. he did not grow up in the church. 
he, his brother uh, had been a part of the church for a while and then his brother reached out to him and he started to come out. Um, but he was already 21 or 22 years old when he joined the yeah. church. So he had a whole life ahead of him, a whole wonderful, lovely life before he joined the church. And uh, I didn't really real know that that could exist. I just oh, thought yeah. everybody had mm-hmm. these miserable, terrible, yeah, sinful. What do you mean he had a great life without this? Worshiping life. Yeah, I just... Yeah, I didn't know that that existed. So I I met my um, husband in 2004. And uh, I, I will never forget because his disciple was also Marty. Jeez. Yeah, Fingers were everywhere. Everywhere. Physically and literally and mm-hmm. metaphorically. Uh, if, if we could pause for a second. Yeah, sure. I don't want to. I just want to mention how. Yes what you were talking about with regards to like, like just like the sexuality within church. And it just, it strikes me how much more we as in males get a benefit of the doubt when it comes to, when it comes to this, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how much you guys, women have to carry way more right than Absolutely. we did and just how in how crazy it is for someone to feel don't tell someone that you're having surgery on your chest because all of a sudden you know they're going to go into this you know they're not going to be able to control their urges and it's 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 something that's hard. It's the hardest thing for me. The more I talk to to women in the church to to reconcile with, it is, it it is not only because women carry the responsibility for protecting the purity of their brothers in Christ. It's also their fault when that person isn't being their idea mm-hmm. of pure. The question comes: What was she? What were you wearing? What were you doing? What were you saying? That was all, that was one of the major excuses as we got into high school was that somehow I was responsible for, for accidentally being groped or, or, you know, whoever was struggling with whatever they were struggling with, that had something to do with my clothes or that had something to do with the way that I looked or had something. And I, I never understood that because I, I didn't wake up in the morning and think I'm going to wear this. So somebody will struggle. Yeah. But uh-huh. now that you're saying that to me, you know, I, it's almost like they force you. And here's the thing is that um, you're talking about the benefit of the doubt is given to males, but not only the benefit of the doubt that's given to them, the, the responsibility of a female to forgive rather than a male to repent is so heavy, mm-hmm. so heavy that my salvation or my spirituality or my discipleship is in question based on the fact that I may have, or in their opinion did wear something that caused him to struggle mm-hmm. that puts in question my walk with God and my membership, my salvation, rather than him yeah. looking at me in some perverted way. 
which you can look at somebody and admire them and the way that they look without being perverted. I mean, there's a way to do that. That, yeah. that is Just call being decent. Totally normal. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of attractive people out there and that's normal. Mm-hmm. But it becomes the female's responsibility to forgive and change her behavior, mm-hmm. not the male's responsibility to change anything about his behavior. Nope. We were free to be yeah. whoever we wanted to be. I don't understand that. I just. I wish I could now. Yeah. Cause I mean, I grew up thinking that I've, I've said this a couple of times, but, but you grew up thinking that, that, I mean, we were, we were thinking about protecting you guys just as much. I don't know if just as much, but we were thinking of protecting y'all's, you know, blessed purity, innocence, yeah. innocence, whatever it was. Um, but the more I talk to you guys, the more it's like when the chips fell, y'all were going to get the brunt of it and we were going to get off a little bit easier. It's almost like your forgiveness is what was going to cause our repentance mm. is something that I, I mean, I'm because I'm trying to just make sense of this because, you know, yeah. it doesn't make sense. Um, I think that's a very good way to put it because I have, I have those uh, not necessarily those specific words but those are those are things that i've you know have actually come up mm-hmm. you know, as we got into later mm-hmm. in the years is that you know yeah my 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 level of forgiveness or uh, how how I, how i'm able to express my forgiveness weighs on how they feel about his repentance, not even his repentance, just how they feel about it. And just think about how much they're caring more about how the person, the male feels versus how you're feeling. Right. Or even in a relationship, this is one of the things like, did you get married in the church? No, no, no. Mm -mm. Okay. So this is one of the things when you get married in the church is, is the, and I, this is something they talk about public, well, not publicly, but like at marriage retreats, I only went to one because I just found it so revolting Yeah, uh, that you do whatever your spouse wants. Yep. You just agree. And mm-hmm. even if it's not something you want to participate in, even if it's not what, you know, y- your sexual relationship is based on what your spouse wants, the male. Yeah. Not you, you guys. No. Go for it. You do. And it's like, um, no, actually, no, that's not right. That's not how that's supposed to go. Even to the point where I don't know, this is a lot of, a lot of relationships in the church. You know, I think men get really good at hiding, hiding their, I don't want to say sexual desire because that sounds weird, but hiding what they want or what interests them mm-hmm. because it's, it's wrong or it's not what they should be doing or however you want to say it. Well, we don't have a healthy avenue to talk about it. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's that's I mean, men hide because that's our that's what we're taught to do. We're taught to hide our emotions, hide our feelings, hide everything. If we're gonna feel something, go about out into the woods into your quote unquote fortress of solitude or go into your room. Mm. That's where that's where that all deserves to be. Um but yeah, yeah we're not taught, we're not there's no place to talk about our desires sexually in regards to a church. Um, and it doesn't just matter. And you're just felt, I don't know if you felt this, but you grow up thinking that it's just magically going to get fixed when you get married. 
I don't know. I, I don't think that I felt that. I definitely felt though that like, um, that that there was a wrong and a right when it came to intimacy and sexual desire and 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 what I thought was right and wrong mm -hmm. was very unhealthy. Yeah, you know that there's a there's a beautiful and a uh, part of your marriage that mm -hmm. is so much more than sexual intimacy. Mm -hmm. But but you're right. It becomes it becomes so like um, you just see it wrong. It's all yeah. Wrong. And I could I could imagine if if we're thinking about trying to talk about what we like mm -hmm. sexually with like a group of guys, I mean that talk about a struggle bus, you know yeah, that might cause. <laughs> I know struggle bus, struggle city, struggles for real. Um, <laughs> it's like you're not going to get around with your 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 bros and just start talking about this because it you know what's going to happen after that'll just lead you to something. Right. So. We're just, we're not allowed to talk about it and it's only damaging when you can't talk about things. Um, it is. And if you think you're doing something wrong and you don't talk about it and then later you find out that it wasn't wrong, you still don't want to talk about it. No, I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> you're true. Like, you're like, oh no, that somehow that's still wrong. Yeah. Even though it's not, you know. Uh, it is. So, so moving, so. I'm yeah, we, so, yeah. No, I'm glad we got to here because I just really wanted to. I didn't want to gloss over that, right? But, no, uh, but yeah. So you meet a you meet this guy. Yeah, um, so I met my husband, and he did not grow up in the church. He came from a really good family. His brother was a part of the church, and his mother was a part of the church. But they became a part of the church later in life. Uh, so, so he, I didn't know him from church. I'd met his mom, and I'd known his brother. But I, I wasn't really close to them. Um, we we're just in different ministries and stuff. But then he started coming out to church and I was actually really sick at the time. And my, my sister and my brother said, you got to meet this guy. He's not like anybody else at church and he's really cool. And so uh, I met him. And what's funny enough is that that exact same time, there was a much older brother in the church really heavily pursuing me, mm -hmm. which is really uncomfortable for me. And so I remember calling uh, my husband, Sebastian, but he was not my husband at the time. I remember calling him and I said, if you're going to ask me to be your girlfriend, you need to hurry up because this guy keeps asking me to go on dates and I don't want to go on dates with him. But I couldn't just say no, right? Uh, you couldn't say no. I couldn't say no. Mm. And so I think, you know, a couple, a week later or so, he asked me to be his girlfriend. And, and even that was like done wrong. Because mm -hmm. he didn't get permission. He didn't get advice. He didn't yeah. talk to all the people that you're supposed to talk to before you ask a girl to be your girlfriend. You know, God, because... it makes you want to throw up, but yeah. I know. So disgusting, right? It is. Uh -huh. So he asked me to be his girlfriend and afterwards we go to dinner and it's like my sister, my brother, my best friend, his brother, a couple others. <clears> and <throat> the church leaders are calling me. Like he oh, didn't. God. He didn't. And I'm like, approval from who? What? We're just boyfriend and girlfriend. It, so anyway, and I really think that that, that kind of uh, pressure made us like want to be together even more because we were just like, stupid. and uh, so we had a really good, a great dating uh, time. And, and then I remember uh, right before he was preparing to ask me to be his wife. I remember at the time his disciple was also Marty. And I remember telling him some things, the effect of like, 
he's not really a good guy. He's actually a really bad guy. And uh, Sebastian told me, you know, you don't have to be his friend, right? And I, <laughs> I, I mean, I like I couldn't even speak after he said that. I just felt like, what? Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't have to be his friend. Holy shit. Like, yeah. Can I say that? Uh, yeah, you can. Okay. Like, what? how, how did we get? Yeah. Wait, what? Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I don't have to be my abuser's friend. I appreciate. And I didn't even tell him he'd abused me. I just told him uh -huh. he was not a good guy, you know? And, uh, I think, I think that that really started, um, I, I think in that moment, I knew that this was just going to be the man that I needed in my life for the rest of my life, even if it wasn't in this capacity. I felt safe. I felt protected. I felt like he actually, he got it without getting it. You know, yeah. I didn't have to say everything. I didn't have to. Uh, he's also one of the very first persons that I ever told that I had CF. I felt like everybody always knew that when they met me. Uh, mm -hmm. I, only knew, I only knew people through church. So, you know. I remember telling him and he's like, Oh, what is that? And so I was able to talk to him about it and share with him about me without the middleman of my discipler going and telling his discipler everything about me. Uh, so it was a very like genuine friendship that grew into a lot of love and um, beautiful. Yeah, it was great. It was a really great time when we, when he told uh, Marty that he wanted to ask me to be his wife, Marty told him that I was damaged goods and I would not be a good wife. Oh, geez. And I just felt like, and I'm so glad he didn't listen to him. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that Sebastian was somebody who was living a godly life and a holy life in this church mm -hmm. without control. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that that could happen. And he just, he just had a different he walked different mm -hmm. you know he just didn't he didn't become a disciple and he didn't get baptized because all these people wanted him to he just felt like that's the path he needed to follow he'd gotten into some trouble and this is where he wanted to be mm -hmm. he didn't have anything to do with anybody else and i felt like oh i had a lot of respect for that i think my parents were, were really nervous because they didn't know him but quickly they grew to love him. He served them a lot. Uh, the relationship there worked out really well. And it just seemed like things are going in a really, really bright way. Mm -hmm. And uh, we we got engaged and then we started discussing marriage counseling because that's a mandatory thing to do in the church. And at that time, our marriage counselors were supposed to be. Oh, geez. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and I, and he refused. Good for him. Yeah. He said, no, we're not going to do that. I, I want to do our marriage counseling with somebody that, uh, that he had studied the Bible with and he felt like was a really good guy. So, and it was somebody I'd known growing mm -hmm. up in my life. And so I felt the same way about them. And so we started doing marriage counseling with them and it, it was in marriage counseling and in 2004 or 2005, I can't remember. I think we got married in 2005. So 2005-ish, we mm -hmm. you know, marriage counseling. And uh, 
that was the first time I ever, I ever really shared details of what had happened as a kid. And what mm. was just crazy is that at that exact moment, without me even really realizing it, because I, you know, I didn't have kids in Kids Kingdom, so Kids Kingdom was not on my mind. I didn't realize that my abuser was actually the teacher of the children who were doing our marriage counseling. Oh, wow. And so uh, they were very distraught and very upset that that somebody who had done those things could now be teaching in Kids Kingdom and that her parents were in charge of Kids Kingdom and they've known and that people who have known that this, you know, it just kind of exploded really and uh, led to a lot of really ugly conversations that didn't really go well with the, with the Tollivers here in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And based upon, I'm, I'm cutting out a lot here, but based on all of those things in 2005, 2006 ish time, um, they were, they were fired um, from their, from their leadership position here. Mm -hmm. What was shared with the congregation uh, was that, that there was just, it was very whitewashed. Yeah. Just painted over as if nothing, they just said that it was their time to move on and that things had, you know, had taken a, a turn and it was their opportunity to look for something else. And my biggest issue was, uh, that they should not be allowed to just go to another church and serve in kids kingdom in another church. Like, yeah. Now that we've been able to communicate about this and in those moments, I realized in 2005 ish, I realized that um, they had lied. They had been lying and they had lied to a lot of people about what had happened and who it had happened to. And there was just a lot of exposure as yeah. to what had really happened. And so, um, you know, I think the Tollivers at the time uh, were dealing with a lot of other things with them, according to what they said, there was issues with money, issues with them getting along with other people. There were all a lot of other issues. And our issue that was brought up was, as they put it, the uh, tip of the iceberg. So there was some mm -hmm. other major issues going on. I don't know how like sexual child sexual abuse is the tip of an iceberg that would <laughs> make you think like, uh, whoa, there's what else is there? I mean, it seems like that could be the worst thing. But anyway, so they were they were fired mm -hmm. uh, from leadership here, and because they were fired from leadership here, they moved and left. And uh, Marty stayed and. Uh, they shared with us that he was so sorry and so apologetic and so repentant and all of these things. And, and um, I never wanted to talk to him. I just didn't have any desire to be in the same room with him ever again. Um, my sister did had a conversation with him and his wife and her husband and the leaders, and it didn't go very well. Um, but they, I guess they were convinced enough of his repentance. So he stayed in leadership here in San Antonio. And, and the way it was presented to us was that he was deciding to separate himself from his family, that he was giving up all of his relationships and his family because they, 
they weren't willing to repent and apologize and move forward. And he was. So he was going to cut ties with them and he was going to stay in leadership in San Antonio and they were going to leave. So that's Whoa. kind of, yeah, that's kind of where we left everything in 2005-ish, 2006-ish. And did you stay a part of the church after that or have you stayed apart or? Yeah. So I, we stayed apart. Um, uh, we left in 2020. Okay. So there's more. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. just keep going. Yeah. Okay. Um, so really, you know, after that, things would come up, little things would come up. And I had no idea what happened to his parents and his sister. They moved and they left out of mind, out of sight, out of mind. I didn't yeah. think about where they went. I didn't think about them at all. Uh, Marty was still here and, and, you know, I think he was a Bible talk leader for a little bit of time. Uh, you know, we were in his Bible talk for a little bit of time and I, I really convinced myself at the pressure of the church, really convinced myself that this was a repented man, mm -hmm. that this was a man who took responsibility for what he'd done. It was a, a weird time in his life where he was taking advantage of these two young girls and he wasn't like that anymore. I really convinced myself of that. I really believed that that, I wanted to believe in what they told me to believe. Yeah. And little things would come up. He'd say weird things in Bible talk. He'd say weird things out loud. He'd, he'd reference body parts or, or um, mention somebody else that he saw. Just strange things and I and I would say stuff like that's gross don't say that or or I would mention something to somebody else and they would say something to him and it would always the response would always be that he didn't say it like that he didn't mean it like that that's not what and you know it, it just there was always an excuse for years and years and years and then I would years later uh, his parents came back to visit the church and the leaders of the church recognized them as leaders of the church in San Diego. Oh, wow. Yeah. They used to do that in church. Like we'd like to welcome so-and-so yeah. and so-and-so and they're here on vacation from whatever. And, you know, it's like this, just recognizing other leaders, you know, because that's so important to them to be recognized. And, and I remember, uh, that that service that they did that going up to the leaders and saying like why are you recognizing them they were fired from here and they did not try to make things right and uh they told me that he'd been he'd been leading in the church in san diego but not in the kids ministry so i shouldn't be worried about it and it, and the other issue here is that during these this time, I was dealing with health issues off and on constantly. Yeah. Then we got pregnant. It was a miracle. We did a lot of fertility care and got pregnant. And so uh, we had a daughter and a lot of things just really didn't. I was just keeping my head down and mm -hmm. being a good disciple. I didn't, you know, I just wasn't mature enough to realize what I was doing or, you know, what I was participating in, what I was a part of. I just, I couldn't see outside of it. 
there wasn't a world outside of it for me. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist. Uh, you know, I worked and I had a great job and my husband worked and we had a daughter and, and things just kind of kept going. I really didn't have a stopping point. And then um, in 2016, I got uh, a message from a friend who was a part of a church in a different city. And she asked me if I was attending this a specific conference that was going on in Denver. And so I, I looked at the conference and I looked at who was speaking and there's the people. Yeah. And and do you know what they were speaking about? Policies and procedures in kids' kingdom. Oh, jeez. And jeez. I, along with uh, another, like, family-type mm-hmm. conference, and they were speaking about raising children in the church and stuff like that, which I'm like, also, like, what people don't remember about them is years and years ago, before we moved to Dallas, before all of that, they had adopted an older teenage daughter, which they don't recognize as their daughter anymore. But this is just because I've known them for so long. I know this, right? And she uh, ran away because she says there was some inappropriate stuff going on in the house. So she ran away and left. And unless you've known them for that long, you would never know that that happened. Yeah. And so also, um, just because I know and you know have known for years, there's a kids kingdom application process that's supposed to be done. Mm -hmm. They can't pass that application process. So how are they leading kids kingdom? That's bananas. And in 2016, now that I'm an adult and I have my own child and I, I'm trying to be a little bit more like, uh, not brainwashed. I'm like, this is a problem. This is not okay. This is, you know, not good. So I mentioned it to the leader and he completely agreed with me. He's like, they're not supposed to be doing these kinds of things. They're not supposed to be leading kids kingdom. They're not all of these things. And I'm like, wouldn't you, wouldn't they know that aren't, if you have somebody here who leaves the church because of failing to report sexual abuse and they move somewhere else, don't you tell the congregation that they moved to that they can't be in kids kingdom? I mean, this sounds crazy, but I studied the Bible with some people and you get to know those people and you get to know what they've experienced. You get to know what they've lived, how they've lived. And I studied the Bible with somebody who had shared that when she was a child, she'd had an inappropriate relationship with another child, Mm -hmm. similarly to what I had experienced growing up. And I, I told her that we needed to report that to the police. I felt like that was our responsibility and that the church leadership needed to know so that they wouldn't assign her to serve in kids kingdom. Right. So there was an officer at the church at the time or something. And I remember having a conversation with them without giving any names or anything like that. And him saying, well, without the victim, unless there's an outcry from the victim, I'll talk to her and I'll see. Okay. So I let it go. Cause I felt like that's what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And then told the administrator of the church, I just finished studying the Bible with this person and they can't serve in kids kingdom. Great. Thank you for letting me know. I felt like that was the right thing to do. I don't know. I probably should have done more now looking back on it. That was a long time ago, but I didn't understand that that isn't what was happening in this situation. I thought that's what was happening. You guys Mm -hmm. told us that you told them 
that they could not serve in this capacity. So how are they still serving in this capacity? And it just started a really bad time. Uh, although our church leader agreed with us, uh, I guess it didn't make it to the conference leaders in time. So they went ahead and spoke, even though I brought it up weeks ahead of time mm-hmm. didn't do anything about it for quite some time. And so it led to all of these really heavy conversations in 2016 and 2017, where we're just like, you guys are not hearing us. This is not right. This is not okay. And then we started to really realize that they, we had been lied to so much, so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just really spiraled out of control for like two years. We just had these really terrible conversations, uh, and would you, would, were y'all like blackballed or like looked at and like oh yeah, yeah, ostracized? For sure. Mm-hmm. for sure. Especially my sister, you know, mm-hmm. she was, uh, in worship, in the worship ministry, she was kicked out of the worship ministry. We used to do, uh, my sister used to organize like the VBS, like the summer stuff, summer kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were totally weren't allowed to do that anymore. Um, you know, the, the crazy part was that, you know, they, they'd convinced us that they'd talked to the board and the board said that it was not reportable, that they had talked to their church attorney and their church attorney said it was not reportable, that they had called CPS, Child Protective mm-hmm. Services, and that Child Protective Services said that it was, our ages were too close to each other for it to be considered a crime. Mm-hmm. These are all the things that we were told that we believed because these were people who loved us and cared about us and were righteous and, you know, at the right hand of God. And so we just believed everything that they said. And and in 2016 or 2017, I think I just said, we just need to call the police. Like, why can't we just call the police <laughs> and report the crime? Like somebody should have done that in the 80s when we reported and mm-hmm. before when we reported like why haven't we just called the police and i know why i hadn't up to that point is because i believed that they were handling it i believed that they knew more than me that they were more righteous than me and i was told what to believe and i believed it yeah i didn't you know anyway so we called the police in 2016 or 17 i can't really remember um and uh filed a report against her and her brother and um we got a call back from like a svu detective like two days later mm-hmm. us for more information and stuff and uh, maybe like a week later he called us and said that unfortunately the statute of limitations expired in 2014 so we were outside of um the limitations to file any criminal charges against them and like a crazy good disciple I go and I tell the leadership that we were outside the statute of limitations oh. reports because I'm an idiot and he just you know I can't tell you how many times they told us Marty loves you so much Marty mm. loves you guys so much and mm. He's so sorry, and he's this, and he's that, and 
you know, at this point, Mark and Cindy were leading in a church in a different city in Texas. And so, you know, we were told to just give it to the Dallas church and the Dallas church would handle it. Mm-hmm. This is just like one example of the lies. So the Dallas church, in order to handle the situation going on in the Lubbock church, which is where Mark and Cindy lived and were leading kids kingdom and were considered like teachers or elders or something in that church. They sent elders from the Dallas church to San Antonio to come and have this huge conversation about what happened, what did they do wrong? And so here we go again, Again. pouring Mm -hmm. out the story of everything that happened to this elder couple in Dallas and they're crying and they're just, we're so sorry. We had no idea. And these are people I've known since I was a young age, you know? Yeah. We're so encouraged by your faith. Why do you guys stay? I mean, just, just pouring out love onto us, like love, like talk about that love bombing. I mean, just bombing us Mm -hmm. with, you're so incredible. You guys are so loving all of this stuff. And we're like, thank you guys so much. And they're like, we're going to handle it. We're going to take care of it. Please don't worry. Never heard a word back mm-hmm. to this day. Then like, I don't know, maybe a couple months later, we're, I'm talking to the leader about it again. And I'm like, we never heard back from that elder couple in Dallas. And he's like, yeah, it didn't go very well. Apparently they went to Lubbock to talk to them and it went badly so much so that, that Mark and Cindy wrote you guys a letter, but it was so disrespectful and degrading to you guys that we decided not to share it with you. Yeah. And then he said, and that elder couple in Dallas, you know, uh, this would be their second time dealing with them because they were part of the committee to fire them in 2005. And I was like, wow. wait, what? They said they had no idea about any of this. And he was like, oh, no, they've known for, I, I mean, that's just one example yeah. of, of the amount of cover up and lies and just ugliness. And um, so then you file, so then are you, is the case, so there's, is there a case open now or, or what is? So where we are now, which is kind of an interesting, you know, the way it goes is kind of interesting because it really wasn't intended to be this way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we felt like the statute of limitations had expired and we lost any opportunity to pursue anything legally with them. And that was like in 2017. And so we really, I, you know, we left completely in 2020, but we stopped participating in church really in 2017 or 2018. Okay. We really just, we did not attend Wednesday services. We did not attend Bible talk on a regular basis. We really just made a lot of space there. And then in 2018, I got really, really sick. I um, I ended up having a, a lung procedure and had some bleeding and then got sepsis and uh, ended up spending a lot of time in the hospital. So it just kind of made more space there for us. Mm-hmm. And as the space just got gradual and gradual, and then when COVID hit and nobody was going to church, I just told Sebastian, I said, this is just a perfect time for us just not to participate in anything. Plus, this is the other kind of weird stuff. My parents were leading a Bible talk at the time, and their region leaders or what have you um, kept arguing with them about where I was going to Bible talk. 
I didn't feel like I was being well supported by my Bible talk because I was really unhealthy and I just, just stopped going. Mm -hmm. And um, I would go to my parents' Bible talk when I could because they live across the street and it was perfect. Easy. I know. And makes uh, sense to us, but probably didn't make sense to the leadership. It does not make sense to them. They wanted nope. us to go to Bible talk like 30 minutes away. I'm like, right nope. now, there's a Bible talk across the street. Um, and it got really ugly. The, the there was a leadership couple, Jeff and Amanda, and they kept they basically told my parents that we there was another thing that that there was a lot of people in leadership that were friends with Marty, so mm -hmm. didn't believe us, you know, and yeah. were telling us that we were defaming him and slanderous, and and at one point they had told us because we told them that we wanted a public apology. Two thousand seventeen, we said they said how can we fix this, and I was very very clear. I gave him like five things. And one of them was we wanted a public apology. He doesn't have to admit anything that he did, but he does need to publicly apologize. And they said that he would not do that because it would make the church, uh, it would put the church in uh, like a place to be sued for slander or malicious talk about them. So they were more afraid of Marty and his family suing them for slandering and defamation against the church than they were about the victims of the sexual assault mm -hmm. that you failed to report suing them, right? Like, mm. How does that make any sense? Because they get the benefit of the doubt. Right. Yes. They get to control the narrative. Yep. Right? Yes. So my, they told my parents they could no longer have a Bible talk. Uh, it just got really ugly, really fast. And I mean, it was already ugly, but uh, we were told, you know, not to talk to people about it. Other people were talking about it behind our backs. We would hear other people saying things about the situation that weren't true. Jeez. We'd confront those leaders and they would lie, like <clears throat> just straight up lie. Um, and so where we are now, kind of coming back to where we are now, when that um, Rolling Stone article came out, did you read that Rolling Stone article? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I read that. It got sent to me by four different people. It's funny. It got sent to me by like a bunch of people for yeah. just totally unrelated reasons, you yes. know, but. Yeah. Well, same. I mean, these are people who, who had known me for a long time. So they knew that there was, some of them knew that a lot and some of them just knew that mm -hmm. there was something there. Right. So I, we got sent the article. I got sent the article and I, I reached out to the legal team, um, with the intent of saying that, that I have kind of a similar situation. So you reach out to Rolling Stone's legal team? No, the legal team that's handling the case that was mentioned. Okay, got it. Because mm -hmm. I think at the end of that article, it said, if you, you know, if you've been a victim of any of these things, here's the legal team's email. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And my intent okay. was to help these young girls who had come forward by saying, Yes, these kinds of things happen in the because under uh, I was completely under the impression that the statute of limitations had expired for us to press any criminal charges yeah. against anybody. So my thought was, if I can share because I had I had documentation, I mm -hmm. had kept some things that I felt like you know were just important to me in my life and things that I'd experienced. You know, if I could help these girls who were pursuing this as you know some sort of like advocate for them saying that what they're saying is true because these kinds of things happen to me as well and i have no other options but to try and help others yeah 
So uh, the legal team contacted me back and asked me for the documentation that I had. And it kind of turned into like this, wait, <laughs> this happened to you? These things really happened like in this way that you're saying that they happened? And uh, they quickly, I guess, felt like I had my own kind of case that I could file against them. And, um, you know, that they said that, that this would be, it would help the girls who filed the other cases, because the more cases against the church, the better it is for those who are filing. So that's kind of how we got to the point where we are now. My, my goal and my intent was just to help the other individuals who had been hurt. I did not know or think that it would turn into its own case. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a different case. You're not attached to the other case. Right. So this case specifically, so it, it was filed in two different places. It was yeah. filed mm -hmm. at a state level and then at a federal level. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the federal level case is the one that, that I'm tied into. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. It's That's been so pretty intense. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. It's been really intense. And um, the, the same weekend we filed, my mother-in-law had a brain aneurysm mm -hmm. in, in El Paso. And so we were not even in town. And um, there was a lot going on on my husband's side of the family during that time. And so it was a really, really intense time. And, uh, you know, I, there's a lot that goes into telling your story in a way that you actually think people are going to respond in the appropriate way. Yeah. And I look back and I think like, you know, no, nobody, not one person from church ever even asked me what happened. Nobody ever asked me. Um, it was almost like, just shut up. They just really wanted me to shut up. They really just wanted me not to talk about it. And um, now looking back and I think, there were things that I did and, and ways that I told friends of mine to try and protect them. You know, I remember having a really close friend and telling, she was also really close friends with Marty and his wife. And I remember telling her, you know, don't ever be alone with him. Just don't be alone with him. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, I think one of been one of the hardest parts of filing this, uh, claim against them is the relationships that I've lost. People that I thought cared over the years that um, some of them knew and some of them didn't, but because they're still associated with the church and they're still part of the church, they just think it's wrong. You know, they think it's wrong that you're doing this. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> I'm I sorry. I'm laughing, but it, it just doesn't oh. like it the laughter isn't laughter of silly. It's just out of exasperation. Right. I mean, my, one of my dad's uh, best friends, this is a man who, you know, when, when I got married and I had my dad walk me down the aisle, I actually had two men walk in front of my dad because these were my other fathers. These were yeah. men who helped raise me. Mm -hmm. One of them, he's still associated with the church. He's still a part of the church in a different state. And, um, he just doesn't agree. 
and he's been my dad's best friend for 30 years. And they used to talk every single Sunday and we don't talk to him anymore. They've come to my, I mean, they've stayed here. I've taken care of his children. I, I love his children. Like they're my siblings. I, you know, this is the man that if anything would ever happen to my dad, he would be my dad. Like, this is my other dad. And he just, he, he just, it just didn't go well. He just didn't respond well. Uh, it's been very hurtful, um, very hurtful. And my sister-in-law said something interesting. She said that the lawsuit is exposing a lot of things. And I said, no, the truth is exposing a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It's not the paperwork and the documentation and this claim made to the state of California. It's, it's the truth. And people are having a hard time with that. And um, it, it, you know, the, the state of Texas no longer allows claims to be made at a certain amount of time frame. That's why it's been filed in California. And it's been kind of shocking to learn that this behavior that I experienced in such a, what seems like an isolated minimal part of the world and time as it evolves is actually the way all of the churches are. And then you read mm-hmm. these documents and it's like, it's like a playbook. It's like they had a playbook written for them on how to manage these things. And they were just following the playbook. Yeah. In, wh- in which I thought what had happened to me was an isolated incident with just this really perverted dude who was out of control, given so much power and so much control. And he just lorded over us. And this is an isolated event with a bad seed, but it's not. There's that's existing in multiple churches throughout the throughout the fellowship, multiple parts yeah. of the world throughout the fellowship. And it's like how how are there this many stories that are the same and yet you you aren't connected? That's one of the things that they're trying to do is that they're trying to say that there is no hierarchy, that the ICOC is not related in any way to anybody else. And as like a side note, the ICOC in San Antonio was the San Antonio International Church of Christ for very, very many years. Yeah. And in, I don't know, 2009-ish or 2011, I can't even tell you. One Sunday, they just get up and say that they've decided to change the name of our church to Mission Point Christian Church. And it was voted by the board and that was a decision that was made. Mm -hmm. So at some point the church changed names. And so since the church changed names, they're trying to disassociate from the ICOC. Um, but it's all, it's all the same branch. It's all the same from the same tree. Um, yeah. If they're not, if they're not connected, then why are there still world discipleship summits? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like that. Right. And conferences that include. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, the leaders of the church here in San Antonio now, the Tollivers, are, I guess, have quite a name for themselves throughout the fellowship. So yeah. they they lead like the different committees and worldwide whatever's disciples today. And, you know, all a majority of their children also work for the church or did work for the church at mm-hmm. one point. So it's it's all very deep. They're very deeply rooted in, in the original International Church of Christ. Yeah. It's it's very it's very um it's amazing how well they got people to really 
believe in the thing versus the people, mm-hmm. you know, because the reactions of most people when you hear like, if if a teacher does something to a student, they're going to be like, that's wrong and it needs to get reported. It needs to get changed. It, something needs to happen. Right. But for us in this, it's like, how dare you speak up? You know, how dare you taint the name of what this is? And it's, it's, it's such a manipulation on our hearts to believe more in the thing versus the people. And I hope that more people can believe in the people versus the thing. I think it's, it's shifting because with technology and with, time i mean more people are just speaking up and more people are just wanting to talk right and i think you know one of the things so my parents left the church much later than we did and Mm -hmm. one of the final you know there's a lot of communication there and i think uh, about this is not a healthy place anymore and i truly believe that god no longer exists there and um trying to talk to them about those kinds of things and they were unmoved for a long time. Uh, one of the final, I guess, things that occurred that they felt like this is too much was, you know, Marty had gone on to lead his own church in a different city and, um, you know, things would come up and it would get weird and then he'd come back and then he'd leave and then he'd come back and it was just very strange. Anyway, they, they brought him back to San Antonio um, to be like full-time leadership staff and the like Friday before the Sunday they were going to announce it, the elders showed up at my parents' house under the guise of like, we're going to bring you dinner and hang out. But what they did was they said, uh, we just wanted to communicate to you guys and let you know that um, we're bringing Marty back as a full-time yeah. leader. We want to make sure you guys are okay with that. And they're like, no, we're not. Um, so that was kind of the final straw for them. But, you know, I think you're right that there's there's a group of people who become the thing, mm-hmm. right? And then there are really devoted, righteous, spiritual individuals outside of that circle of people who really do care and really want to love God, who really want to serve others and have, <clears throat> as my mom would say, good hearts. But I tell my mom, you can't be a good hearted person and cooperate and participate in such a terrible thing. Yeah. And the way I feel like I've worked really hard to separate myself is by being different than what I've known. And one of those ways is trying to just be truthful. Yeah. Just be honest about things, you know? And one of the other things is, um, and all this started to get really hairy. I I realized that I have to take responsibility for my role in the participation as an adult mm-hmm. and manipulating others and bringing others to this church. I mean, I had to reach out to, I didn't have to, but I decided to reach out to, it was like three or four different women that I'd studied the Bible with as an adult who had shared with me uh, things, things that had hurt them when they were children or even as adults being hurt. And that I, I felt like I needed to apologize for just feeling like I knew the answers Yeah. that this series of Bible studies and this church 
is the appropriate way to handle your trauma and your and things that were done against you. Like, who am I to put myself in a position to think that I'm in any place to handle somebody's vulnerable life like that mm-hmm. and apologize to them? I mean, you know, as women, we're always vulnerable. As women, we take a position to put our, to be um, hurt a lot more than men do. And so you study the Bible with people and a lot of them have been hurt. A lot of them have been mistreated. A lot of them have childhoods that should somebody should have called the police. Somebody should have gone to CPS. Somebody should have done those things. And when we're when we are disciples studying the Bible with somebody and that person shares that with you, that's what you're supposed to do. But we're never told that. We're never communicated in that way, which makes me feel like it's literally a cesspool of people who have been either hurt or hurt others. And nobody is saying this is for the professionals. <laughs> yeah. We need to call the police or, I mean, you know, I, I, there's several women I've had to apologize to and just say, I'm sorry. I didn't handle that. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't give you the option of doing things legally. If you wanted to, I, and I have to take responsibility for my participation in that. And that's probably been the hardest part is taking a step back and, and seeing at what point, you know, did I, at what point could I have been different? And, and I, and I didn't have the power to, I didn't see outside of it, you know? And now that I'm, now that I'm trying to get there, now that I'm feeling more of like my own person and trying to release myself of that hostile hostage type situation, what am I doing to help others? You know, and I, and I'm hoping uh, that this lawsuit is a way to say, this is bad. Like, yeah, don't do this, you know? Well, I hope that it, it can bring that. I hope that it can be a wake up call. I hope that it can be everything that, that, you and these other women would want it to be need it to and need it to be yeah. um it's such a it's such a tale as old as time when it comes to religious systems and things like this coming up that's the saddest part um and yeah, it's not new yeah yeah, and I wish it was new. Yeah, Part too. of me wishes it was what well, I, I used to tell people that you know I've gotten I've gotten to experience a lot of other churches and it made me feel less special about the stuff I've gone through. And I kind of hated that for a minute because you kind of yeah. feel like we're the only ones, but I think it's true and you know, I'm, I'm grateful for you, you know, sharing the story and, and all of this and you being vulnerable in this for, for this platform. And I do hope everything that you want from this specific lawsuit that you get, you know, you You know, and the interesting thing to me is, um, I've heard, I've heard, so not because just because we're friendly with a few people, who left the church after us and after the lawsuit was filed. We've heard some of the things that they've said from the pulpit about it, you know. And one of the things that I feel like is bothers me so much. I mean, they can say I'm a liar. They can say all the things that they want to say. 
because they control the narrative and there's a mm -hmm. there's a room full of people that believe them no matter what is said right i did too so i get it i believed everything they said too it if you had told me 2016 or 2017 when it was really heavy that they were just liars i wouldn't have believed you either so yeah you know i get that i understand that it's hard that you're you know these people you've entrusted with your spiritual walk you believe you want to believe that they are really seeking righteousness in the way that you are mm -hmm. so realizing that they aren't that it, it is really an intent to just get you to agree just get you to tithe just get you to obey mm -hmm. it's so hard to see that that's that that could really happen one of the things that is so bothersome is that they say that this is about money and i almost like, laugh you at doing that. this is about money yeah Check. i almost laugh at that because i'm like well, you guys forget that i've been a part of this church since i was two years old so what money yeah because according to everything i've ever known my whole entire life is that there is no money. Mm -hmm. So what money could I be seeking? If every week, if every month, if every year, there's a whole two months of church that it talks about your tithe and how much you need to give and share scriptures about your heart being in the right place for you to give and that if you don't give, then you're going to hell and right? That there is no money that we need to do special contribution to help others because money is so tight and we want to invest in people, not in buildings. I mean, all of these conversations about there not being enough money mm -hmm. to advance God's kingdom, because that makes sense. He needs our money. God needs our money to advance his kingdom. That's the that's the pitch, right? Yeah. What money am I suing for then? Where is the money? There is no money, right? Yeah. I mean, be. just goes be. back. It goes back because benefit of the doubt versus... Right. You know, that sucks. What money? And then, uh, you know, I money has never been discussed with the legal team. Not one cent. Mm -hmm. I haven't talked to them about that hasn't come up at all because they, I mean, you know, in my opinion, they're advocating for the truth and they're advocating yeah. for the clients. That's how I feel that they're doing. Um, I don't know. I feel like the, the truth had to be told in this way because you wouldn't hear it any other way. You wouldn't hear mm -hmm. us in person when we were begging and pleading for you to, if Marty, I believe people can repent and I believe people can be not nice people and turn into nice people. I believe people can change. Let him count the money. Let yeah. him stack chairs after church. You are putting people in positions of power that have hurt other individuals in ways not everybody does. And that's not okay. Yeah. There are other people in, in the church in San Antonio who are, who have same behaviors, who have, uh, this is kind of a side note, but I know of an individual who lost his job teaching. Do you know how hard it is to lose your job teaching? You have to kill someone. Probably it's really lose. hard to yeah, lose your job. Really hard. Um, I used to work for a school district. It's really yeah, hard. It is hard. With the unions, it's really hard. But I knew this guy who went to church with us who lost his job teaching because of an inappropriate contact with a student by yeah. phone. Not illegal, just just weird. Borderline. 
Yeah. Borderline, illegal, inappropriate. You should not be exchanging phone numbers with your students anyway. So he was let go of his job. He got a different position in a different district and got in trouble for the same thing. Oh, geez. So they pulled his license. They did an investigation. Um, it turns out he, I, I guess, you know, in the process of the investigation, they weren't able to find anything illegal that he did. So he's been encouraged not to go back to the school districts to teach. And so his license was suspended or what have you. Yeah. Um, and now that person's on the board at the church here in San Antonio. And I, the problem I have with that is that there's a congregation of mostly, not all, mostly genuinely good-hearted individuals who are trusting you to tell them who's safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're putting these unsafe people in positions of leadership, which would make me, if I weren't in the position I'm in, if I were just a mom bringing my kids to church, you recognize the board, then that board member comes and says, why don't you guys come over for dinner? Oh, he's on the board of the church. That must make him safe. It doesn't. Mm-mm. And you put these people in positions of power just to control others' ideas of who they are. And it's just yeah. unsafe. It's just unsafe. When when we got kicked out of my parents' Bible talk, we got kicked out of my parents' Bible talk, <laughs> they put us in the Bible talk of a registered sex offender in our church. So many alarm bells are going on. I just, it's crazy. I have a 10-year-old daughter. You're, yeah, you're not, so then you yeah. want me to attend a Bible talk with my child and say, this is our Bible talk leader, which gives her the idea that this is somebody that I'm following. No. Yeah. That's, that's, it's just control. It's power. It's, it's, it's like you're saying control. controlling of the narrative. And I hope that. And don't ask any questions. Yeah. Oh God. Just that's do what we're telling you to do. Yeah. And I did that. I, I did that as a child. I, I did that my whole life. And mm-hmm. I, and I'm grateful for you also giving people an opportunity to, to speak, to share. I, I think it's important. You know, yeah. there's a huge church community of people who, who, who've now created a subculture community <laughs> of people like us who are like, where was, where was this when I was like 13 and 14 and making a yeah. stupid decision to, to commit my life to this congregation of people who I, I mean, you know, on a regular level, yeah, I've met so many more incredible people outside of the congregation mm-hmm. than I have inside, which is yeah, so scary. Too. I would not have believed that, you know. I mean, well, you, I could, think... you couldn't have convinced me of that when yeah. I was in it. But none of us would have thought that. Um, no, it's just there's so much power in stories. There's so much power in in your voice and and in sharing of the stories, you feel less alone and sharing of stories. You're allowed to heal because you're, you're hearing the same things. I know that when this gets shared, people will hear, hopefully people will hear the same situations and feel like they're less alone. Like I'm saying. And and then in also way you kept saying controlling the narrative and in, in us sharing this, it's like, we're adding to the narrative and hopes that the narrative can change. Um, Right which is a cool thing. I think, uh, you know, it's, it seems 
silly to say or to ask this, but but this is it's like the last question and that I like to do on this segment of you know we were in a cult, you know like when, I, when when people say that what do you think after everything? Yes, if if, if there's a short answer, yes, we yeah. were in a cult. Uh-huh. Even just recently, like months. Uh, some of my family members who were a part of the church in a different city mm-hmm. were removed from membership for asking questions. Yep. Um, I don't want to get too into that because not mm-hmm. my story to tell. Yeah. But um, I mean, I think any any congregation, and this isn't the first time, and you know, this, I, there's multiple stories about people being kicked out. I think any any religious fellowship that that has a membership requirement where not asking questions and not uh not falling in line not allowing people to have their own thoughts and their own opinions and i mean you know we can get into the only dating inside the church people outside the church are bad Um, you know these kind of roll calls that they do this idea that there's a leadership group and that leadership group gets to make decisions for a body of people and that small leadership group can discuss and make life altering decisions for individuals that they consider to be under them now i don't know what defines a cult you know for me it's my own experience would seem like that would be enough but really you know it has to be your own whatever you've experienced you know it's easier to identify it when it's happening to you yeah mm-hmm. you know like i said i just i just uh, one of the things i think has to happen in order for people to leave it and be different is to acknowledge that it was wrong and that at some level i participated in that and i'm and i i was wrong for that too Mm-hmm. And I'm going to not do that anymore. And I'm going to actually do the opposite of that, which is trying to encourage others to see the cult for what it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much thank for... You. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you allowing me to share your story. And again, I, I hope the lawsuit brings everything that you you need and it helps all of the girls involved and hopefully can be a wake up call and all the things. So absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was nice talking to you. It was great to talk to you too. Um, you know, once again, guys, if, if you were a member of the ICOC and like to come on, feel free to email me at balancedmailpcast at gmail.com or you can contact me through the balanced mail podcast, Instagram page. Once again, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Mm -hmm.